Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. We all know that content is king. Whether you create a video, written content, or have a podcast, Keeping audiences engaged is the name of the game. Right now, any business who's not creating content is getting left behind. Everyone should be acting like a media company in the area of mass information or misinformation. How can we engage with diverse audiences and gain their trust? That's the key question. Carlos Watson is the co-founder and CEO of Aussie Media, a modern media company for the curious that focuses on the new and the next. We discussed why create a content platform, how anyone can make a difference, and why America needs to be reset. Carlos, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, Jeffrey, good to be with you and could not agree with you more. Every business does need to operate as a media company. Out here in Silicon Valley, we're seeing it now all the time, whether it's a shaving company, a car company, a venture capital firm like Andreessen Horowitz are all acting like media companies, I think, to their benefit. Well, Andreessen Horowitz, you said that's big money right there. And of course, I just recently had the uh, the general manager for Harry Shaverod. So we're covering all aspects of right here. Why do you think content has become so important? Probably a couple of reasons. One, obviously, there are more touch points for it. So when you and I were growing up, you're a little younger than I am. But when I was growing up, there are only a couple of networks. And nowadays, you know, on your phone, you've got access not only to all the networks, but to social media platforms and so many other different ways. And so I think that's part of the reason. I think another is that the bar has gone up. And I think we lived through that beautiful HBO era where we all realized that you didn't have to get smart and boring or something that was flavorful, but didn't really have any heft to it. But you could get those great shows like The Wire and Sex in the City and Sopranos and others that were both substantively great shows, but were fun and flavorful and fresh. And so I think everyone's expectations have gone out. So I think for all of those reasons, and I think, frankly, a lot of ad blindness or a little ad weariness, I think so much in terms of advertising became a little bit boring, a little bit predictable, with the exception, of course, of the beer commercials. And so I think all three of those things have made premium content have a magical moment here. And for a young company like Ozzy that's winning Emmys and getting nominated for different awards across four different categories, it's a good time for us, whether it's festivals, podcasts, TV shows, or newsletters. Well, I know what it's like to work at a network like Bloomberg and others where I had my own shows and then started C-Suite TV and C-Suite Radio. And I also know what it takes to start a media company. And it's not for those that are weak at heart. So why did you start a media company? I was weak in the head. (laughs) (laughs) And and better be deep in the wallet, too, when we first get this thing started. You know what? I should have come and talked to Uncle Jeffrey, and he would have said, hey, young man, you know, I got a better plan for you. It's called FinTech or crypto. And why don't you do that for a little while? Oh, but those are boring. This is more exciting. I'd be able to you know, build content that people watch, listen, see, we inspire, we educate, we motivate, right? You know, I love where you are. And in all seriousness, my head and my heart are where you are. I grew up the son of a guy who absolutely loved newspapers. My dad loved learning. He loved seeing the world. He was curious. We would drive a full hour from where we grew up in the southern part of Dade County, a little place called Homestead, Florida, 
all hmm. the way up to the Miami airport, which was an hour plus away. We do it twice a week in my dad's Pinto. I don't know if you remember Pinto's. My dad's Pinto. I had, I had one, a 1976 yeah. Ford Pinto. I even picked up Ralph Nader at the airport in the Pinto, and he oh. wouldn't get in. So that's oh, another story. My. But please, well, that's because you probably didn't have seatbelts. And I know, I know, <laughs> I know, Uncle Ralph was uh, focused on seatbelts before everybody else was. But I say that to say that I love learning too. I love seeing the world. I love the way in which media can not only help you see more, but to be more and do more. And that always was my hope with Ozzy. And I felt like as someone who got a chance to anchor at CNN, at MSNBC, at CNBC, that so often we focused on a handful of headline stories. And often there were four or five important ones. And I'm not saying they weren't important, but I'm saying there was so much more, Jeffrey, over here and over here and up there and down there. But instead, we so often stayed right here. And even when we would call it breaking news, I would say, what are we talking about? We've been talking about this for three weeks. It's not breaking news. It's broken news. And I wanted to be about the new and the next. I wanted to talk about rising stars, new trends, big ideas, a year or two before they were household names. And so that's what drew me into that. That and a little bit of growing up with Wired magazine in the early days. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember Wired and its Oh, yeah, absolutely. Days. It would talk about, it would tell you about companies before they were household names. You'd hear about entrepreneurs before they were big deals. You know, some of the music magazines were like that, originally Rolling Stone and later The Source and Pitchfork. And so all of those things were kind of in the gumbo, if you will, Jeffrey, that got me interested in creating a different kind of media company, a modern media company. And, uh, and hence, Ozzy was born just a few years ago out here in the Bay Area. So we talk about a trusted network in the C-suite network all the time about how you have to be a trusted network with trusted executives. And I also mentioned earlier the era of misinformation. So what's your strategy to gain the public's trust and get them to engage with your audience? Yeah, I, I think three things I think have always been critical. One is we've always promised people that we would cover a wide, wide array of things. And this is a moment in which so many people have gone narrow and deep. So only business or only a certain kind of uh, medical reporting or a certain kind of sports reporting. We've said, no, we know that Jeffrey Carlos are full human beings. We've got a wide range of interests from music to science, from politics to sports. And so we're going to make sure that we feed all that Two is we've tried to hire only the best of the best, and so had an incredibly selective process, both full-time and part-time. But the third thing, the thing that I hope has done a lot to help us earn our audience's trust, is we promised them that we were going to bring them the new and the next. So we were going to introduce you to a young comic from South Africa before everyone else knew him as Trevor Noah of The Daily Show, that we would introduce him to a bartender before she was AOC, to a young judge before he was Brett Kavanaugh, to a young singer before she was Dua Lipa to a high school kid before he was Aaron Judge. And I think the more we've done that and the more our audience has known that this young college kid with a stutter could become Amanda Gorman a couple years later, the more they have said, you know, Ozzy may not get everything right, but more often than not, Ozzy's going to put you ahead of the curve. And so I think that as much as anything has made a difference. Well, and, you know, I've been reading and watching and following you, and Ozzy is creating a space for fresh perspectives, you know, that I guess that a lot of people said have defied convention. What conventions are you def- uh, defying and what elements do you look for in the content that's being submitted? You know, that new and the next piece for me is, is where it starts, because, again, I remember being at CNN and uh, substituting for Judy Woodruff on a show called Inside Politics. That was the first time I had a chance to anchor. They were asking me who I wanted on the show. And I said, hey, there's this really interesting young guy. His name's Barack Obama. We should have him on. They were like, nah, 
Yeah. Who's that? Who's that guy? Yeah. Correct. (laughs) And so, you know, when that happened to me enough times, it both made me understand that so often our most sophisticated media groups were so committed to only a handful of stories that if I really wanted to kind of look at the new and the next and find the cutting edge, much in the way that we do every day here in the Silicon Valley, it's our kind of normal way of being, it's our normal MO, that I probably needed to be a part of creating something new, that so many of the existing media companies were probably really committed to what happened today and yesterday, as opposed to what could happen or is happening today and tomorrow. And so that was one. I think the other thing, especially for, I think, for kind of smart millennial and Gen Zers, is they very much, I think, want to be able to enjoy content their way. And so the idea that you're only going to deliver podcasts or you're only going to deliver uh, streaming TV shows or you're only going to have festivals, I think it's kind of an outdated idea. And so part of what we've tried to do is say we understand that our audience, some people may want to watch, some people may want to read, some people may want to listen, some people may want to experience. And so we've made an investment, even though it was harder to do, it would have been much easier to only do digital and then occasionally do these experiments over here. But we made a really determined decision to do a dozen TV shows, a half dozen podcasts, festivals in four cities, five different newsletters, so that our audience of kind of smart and curious millennial and Gen Zers could do it. And I'd say the last thing is, I think, is being global. I think that's been important to us. From very early on, we knew that whether it was our music, our food, the TV shows we like these days, you know, I love Peaky Blinders. I don't know if you're a Peaky Blinders guy yet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But We've got to be open that the best shows, they may be Mad Men that starts here in the U.S., but but it may also be a show that comes out of Germany or out of Israel or out of Brazil or out of somewhere else. And so from a very early stage, Ozzy made a commitment both to source our stories from around the globe, hence finding a Trevor Noah early on in South Africa before he was here in the States, but also to make sure that we were reaching audiences beyond our shores here. And so I'd say that's been a third piece to kind of going against the convention, at least at the moment. When you think about new media companies like a Vice, a Vox, a BuzzFeed, a HuffPo, kind of an older generation of them, they were largely kind of Johnny One Notes. They did one thing, and they were largely U.S.-centric in many ways. And much of the reporting, again, much like the older companies, was about things that had happened today and yesterday, not as much about what's new and next. C-Suite Radio. You mentioned that you pride yourself in identifying trends before they become mainstream. You mentioned Trevor Noah but before he became the host of The Daily Show. Why is it that mainstream is so slow to catch on? What are they missing? And what do you see that they don't? It's interesting because, again, I have a lot of friends at some of these terrific places. And obviously, I've been lucky enough to work at those. I, you know, look, to be fair to them, there is so much going on today and certainly over the last couple of years that someone could make a, a reasonable argument that the now matters even more than, than the next. And, and so I, I get it. And, and I get that particularly during uh, President Trump's four years, particularly with a once-in-a-generation pandemic, you know, with all the sorts of things that are going on, that someone could make a reasonable argument that they needed to keep their focus there. And I think that's part of it. But it's more than that. I think it's the innovator's dilemma. Harvard Business School mm-hmm. professor Clayton Christensen used to write about why it was so tough for some of the very best companies, blue chip companies who had been uber successful to keep innovating. And so why would you as Kodak allow someone else to eat your lunch when it comes to digital photography? Or if you're Blockbuster, why would in the world would you allow Netflix to grow up in the way that you did? Or if you were Yahoo, why would you give way and not buy Facebook for whatever Zuckerberg was asking for at the time? 
a million bucks, five million bucks. Why wouldn't you buy it? And I think it it is just hard. I think it's hard when you've had so much success doing stuff one way to really lean into doing something bold and fresh and new. And to that matter, Jeffrey, you and I probably especially respect the companies who do manage to take chances and keep innovating even when they've been successful, because you and I know that that's harder to do. It's much easier to kind of stay in place and kind of ride your current successful wave. Yeah, to build that out, you know, and I can remember sitting in the boardroom of Kodak with Clayton talking about that very same thing in numerous meetings about how to drive change. You remember Les Moonves when he was at CBS, he said, I'm not giving up broadcast dollars to pick up digital pennies. I remember that. And I remember turning to him at one time and said, there's a lot of digital pennies out there and they add up to dollars pretty quick. Are you seeing the adoption on the advertising side, the adoption on the sponsorship side pickup? When I started C-Suite TV six, seven, eight years ago, it was bleeding edge, you know, and we bled for a long, long time. I said (laughs) we were hemorrhaging edge is the way I used to describe it. Are you starting to see that really bounce for you? It's funny. You say you got to put up your dukes, right? In these situations. And it is tough. It is starting to turn a corner, which has been great. Jeffrey, you probably saw that we've announced a couple of big, significant deals. Oh, totally. Big ones, yeah. Another with, uh, which is the largest ad agency in the world. Another with Dentsu, that's also a top five ad agency. Big big group out of Japan, but worldwide. Uh, Very big Big group out of Japan. Represents uh, Procter & Gamble, represents Microsoft, represents General Motors, represents a whole suite of kind of Discover, a whole suite of tier one companies. Also, we announced a fairly large partnership, multi-year partnership with Walmart. So I would tell you that there is a change that is happening. I think as linear TV struggles and as they see their viewership drop and yet their prices rise, I do think people are saying, wait, tell me it again. You're going to give me half the audience versus what you gave me last year, but you're going to actually charge me three times more. I'm not sure I want that honor. Thank you very much. Ozzy, yeah. are you available? And, uh, and, and so that's offered a really good opportunity. So yes, I think we are at an inflection point, Jeffrey. And as you said, it's been tough getting here. I mean, think about all the carcasses that you and I have seen along the road. Great young companies like Mike, like Mashable, like and good, great Taylor. talent and great talent that started a great lot of talent. that. Right? Great yeah. talent, and so it's not easy getting to where you've gotten to. And so I've got a great appreciation when you say, you know, hemorrhaging edge or bleeding edge. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've got blood to spill right alongside you. Well, hopefully, not. it doesn't sound like you're bleeding as much as some of us had to do. But talk to me about why we need to reset America. What sparked this? And does America need to be rebooted or simply just kind of tweaked a little bit? Yeah, great question. Uh, You know, I was talking to your boy, Reed Hoffman, the other day, LinkedIn co-founder, PayPal founding team, early investor in Facebook and lots of other good. And Reed's just good dude all day long. And he said he believed in constant renovation. He said we should always be in the renovation business, right? We should always be kind of thinking about how we could be better. And, you know, you hear that. Also, you and I have from folks like Michael Jordan over the years. I mean, part of what you and I admired about him and others was that no matter how good he was, he was always looking to get meaningfully better. He was never kind of saying, I'm the best in the world. Let me kind of sit back. There was always that sense of I owe it to every fan out there who feels lucky to get to come to one game to give my best that day. And I've always loved and respected that kind of mindset. And so with all that as a background, one of the things I've said to my team is that I think that this decade is going to be the most transformative decade we've seen in a half century, meaning that I think on all the big fundamental issues, love, 
marriage, capitalism, mm. war, gender, race, technology, in this case, robots, currency, Bitcoin, yeah. Bitcoin the rest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We are going to see the most fundamental change. And it's because, you know, Jeffrey, you and I, the differences we had with our parents were probably 10%, 20%, meaning how we thought about a job, how we thought about a house, what we considered school, how we thought about those things. A 17-year-old and a 47-year-old today, ask them how they both think about whether or not they'd ever buy a house. It's not a 10% difference. It's a massive or work for Or work for a company. I mean, think about this. A majority of millennials right now are going to be project-based income. That's phenomenal. That changes <laughs> dynamics everywhere. Changes dynamics everywhere, changes where they live as well, right? And so changes right. housing dynamics, changes how we talk about capitalism could end up changing yeah. how we think about voting and democracy. So I think there's just going to be a massive set of changes. And I think when you have moments like this, there's an opportunity not just to tweak, but to reset and to refresh and to get stronger and to get better. And so I would love for us to say, what if we not only looked at opportunities for changes over the next year or two, but what if we said America's going into America 2.0? What should the next 250 years look like? What if we had a new constitutional convention and along with Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton, you threw in there Hazlitt and Coates and Lakshmi and Gladwell and a whole suite of other people? What thoughtful ideas would we come about when it came to democracy, when it came to policing, when it comes to sleep? When it comes to income, I just think there's an opportunity to unleash really bold ideas. And, and that's what excites me. And I hope that that's what happens over this decade. So I've heard journalists say this before that a good friend at CNN, Christiana, said they should be truthful, not neutral. Do you just subscribe to that notion or you think that it may compromise objectivity? I know there's a lot of times I will give an opinion on things, I don't normally stay neutral. I say it like it is because I don't think it's, I think it's difficult to be neutral. How, what do you think? Well, first of all, I love that our girl Christian did that. In my mind, again, you're too young to remember the Iceman George Gervin, but he was a brilliant player in the 70s who had a beautiful finger roll. So whenever uh, I hear he, that, By the way, thank you for giving me those accolades, but that's not true. Let's just be clear. <laughs> you know what? You did? In that case, you've aged well. So I'm going I'm to give you the credit that you're due. I'm I, hey, I'm, a, I'm, I'm 60. I was born in 1960s. Give me my due. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. You get it. You've earned it. You, uh, you, you get all the good stuff. Look, I, I, I say this to you. I say that at Aussie, we're not neutral. We're multipartisan. I think neutral is French for boring. Um, mm -hmm. but, but what I do believe is I am interested in hearing what Ted Cruz has to say. I am interested in hearing what AOC has to say. I am interested in hearing what Donald Trump has to say. I am interested in hearing what Cornell West has to say. I'm interested in hearing from a variety of people. And I don't think that I'm likely to only have one view where I 100% only agree with one person. Like you and I would at a buffet, I'm going to take a little bit of this, a lot of that, yeah. a little bit of this, some of that. And that's where I think I'm going to end up. And so do I want to have the freedom to have a broad conversation, as you said, speak truth where it is? 100%. Do I think that that truth has to be spoken with a little bit of humility? I do. Someone said something wonderful to me the other day, Jeffrey. It was such a smart thing. He said, let's get out of this business of the right way and the wrong way. I mean, sometimes that is true. Sorry, let me start over. Sometimes it is true that it's the right way and the wrong way. But a lot of the times, if I had to estimate two-thirds of the time, it's which right way? Am I going to take Jeffrey's right way or Carlos's right way? 
Both of them are going to end up being interesting young media companies. And so let's not get into this game where either Jeffrey's C-suite is the right way to do it or Carlos's Ozzy's the right way to do it. Maybe they're both right ways. And so there's a little bit of that in it for me as well, that if I really were to engage in a more fulsome way with people, I would challenge them not just truth versus neutral, but I would engage them to have truth with a little bit of humility and like be open to the fact that even if you're right, like Jeffrey may be right too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's well, possible. Like you both. Absolutely. Could be right. I think, I, I think the most important thing is to be transparent in the conversations. That's one in doing that, to be real honest in those conversations, say, yep, I, I get it. I don't get it. Or I don't understand. I don't get what you just said. Well, I tell you what I really like when we see it in media is good, healthy debate, good, healthy debate without a lot of labels, because labels to me suck. To be able to say, because you're a black man, you should think this way, because I'm a white man, I should think this way, or a liberal, conservative, whatever, the only label that should really matter is human. And then from there, we should start having good conversations. I'd love to see more of that stuff. You know what? I'm the brother of three sisters, so I've lost many of debate. (laughs) my time. And so I like good, healthy debate too, especially if I've got a good tag team partner. And I think you're right. I think people get wonderfully surprised. I will say this, and I don't say this as kind of some um, blind America first cheerleader, but, but as someone who's been lucky enough to visit some 50 countries over my life and really enjoyed those places and would be lucky to get a chance to live in some of those places or at least visit for a long time, I still do think that America does have some special magic in that I think we're more willing than I think people sometimes give credit for to hear different sides to it. I know not everyone is, but enough of us are. Now, look, do you have to tell the story in an engaging way? You do. Do you have to sometimes handle some pushback in order to tell your story? You do. But there's an opportunity to be on the stage and to have those conversations. And what I love about Gen Z, especially even more than millennials, is there's a bright ferociousness and a desire for things to be better. Sometimes wrongheaded, sure, but everyone's wrongheaded sometimes. And I like that they push and I like that they get into the arena and that they want to have real conversations about guns, about climate, about better schools, about what work should look like. I think that's a good thing. Let's mix it up a little bit. And that holds true to any conversation. We're talking a little bit about news and about various topics of the day, but it applies to companies and applies to story. But nobody wants to watch a washed branded commercial. They want to listen to a great story about the brand and what it is, how you got there, your trials, your tribulations, that you didn't do it perfect and you did it, but you did it your way, as you said before. C-Suite Radio. Hey, listen, you also launched Aussie Fest. First of all, great name. Love it. It's a kind of a combination between uh, TEDx and Coachella. Tell me more about why you did this. Yeah. So, you know, when we started Ozzy originally, we were a daily digital magazine, reporters around the globe who were competing for one of a dozen spots to write about the new and the next, to write about a young Trevor Noah, a young Amanda Gorman, a young Issa Rae. We began to migrate and take some of our best articles a couple of years in and turn them into TV shows for Hulu, for Amazon, for A&E, for Lifetime, for, for others, and turn them into podcasts for iHeart, for BBC, for Apple, for others. But one of the things that was missing, and we started to hear it from our audience, Jeffrey, they said, as much as I like reading, watching, and listening to Ozzy, as much as you, you know, get me out of my bubble, as much as you push me to see the world more broadly, why don't you ever get people together? Or is Ozzy going to build a community? Or why doesn't Ozzy do meetups? And Jeffrey, at first, we were going to do small events, a little bit like Fortune Magazine has done or The Atlantic, 
got real pushback from our audience. One woman in particular said, I remember, she said, I don't need any more small shitty events. I really, I miss how great South by Southwest used to be. It's gotten overgrown and sprawly. If someone could bring back that magic, that's what I would love. And so that led us to start Aussie Fest in Central Park, in the beautiful outdoors. And as you said, people call it Ted Meets Coachella because on one hand, we want to have some of the best interesting thinkers. So a talk by a Malcolm Gladwell, a Mark Cuban, a Nikki Haley, a Kamala Harris. But then maybe you get musical performances by Lizzo or Tovlo or chefs like Padma Lakshmi or Eddie Wong, or I love comedy. And so we'll have a Chelsea Handler and Issa Rae, all sorts of good folks there. And you end up finding, Jeffrey, that someone thinks, hey, I'm going to come because I want to hear John Legend. But then they surprise themselves and they're interested in the author Jhumpa Lahiri. Or they may think, hey, I'm coming because I want to see Karl Rove. And they end up over here listening to RuPaul. And so I love the fact that people are caught off guard and that there's a really beautiful mix. And then you end up having people from so many different places. And so You know, this year we had a wonderful virtual one. Two million people had a chance to stream parts of it. Next year we'll be in person in Miami, in San Francisco, in New York, and in Atlanta. And so I'm really excited about when the world hopefully gets back to health, kind of doing it out in the open again. I think you can get four million people there if you get RuPaul to dress up like Carl Rove. I think that would be cool. That would be cool. And by the way, in your lineup, I didn't hear any country Western people. So let's get that fixed. Let's get that done. We need to to fix that. Uh, My boy, Jason Aldean is also from, uh, we're from the same part of uh, Florida. He spent part of his time growing up uh, down in Homestead near where I grew up in in the Southern part of Dade County. So we could start with him and keep going from there. I wouldn't mind a little Blake Sheldon, a few other good people. Blake Sheldon, a little Trace Atkins, you know, a little bit of that stuff would be good. Well, listen, I, I could go on and on. I would love to. This has been a fascinating conversation. Well, let me ask you one more question. Why did you start your own show? I'm curious. You you know, you know got all this other great talent out there, but you started your own YouTube show called The Carlos Watson Show. Tell us how and why you decided to launch your own show. It's interesting. It was definitely not something I expected. And so, again, as bad as COVID and as bad as the last year has been in so many yeah. different ways, and also like so many things in life, you know, sometimes trash becomes energy or sometimes lemons give you lemonade. And, you know, about a year ago, if you remember, John Krasinski was doing that very cool thing on YouTube called Some Good News, and it hit at just the right time. And then about a week in, he disappeared. And so several friends who were involved over there said, hey, why don't you think about doing something here? You know, we need a different kind of talk show. Once upon a time, we had places like Oprah and Larry King that allowed lots of different people into the arena. And what if you created something where from, you know, Ava DuVernay to Megyn Kelly, from John Legend to Mark Cuban, from the City Girls to Bill Gates, where all sorts of trendsetters and tastemakers could come. And I had grown up loving some of those kind of in-depth shows. I was kind of a Ted Koppel guy, or I remember uh, Donahue, or, you know, even Charlie Rose's show. I thought there was something to that kind of long-form opportunity. And so all of those things swirled around. We originally, Jeffrey, were only going to do 20 episodes. So I thought it was going to last that long. And we ended up having, as they say in college football, the luck of the Irish. And uh, and it's become, uh, I think, the fastest growing talk show in YouTube history, quarter of a billion views later. It's just become something really strong. And this past month, we just uh, got picked up as Amazon's first primetime talk show. So we're now both on YouTube and on Amazon, which is great. Well, congrats. And it shows why, you know, good hard work and great ideas. And sometimes a little luck of the Irish doesn't hurt either. 
And it just it just sparks. It sparks. It will help the Irish so far this season twice. Uh, two wins by three points. So it's ah, uh, uh, my relatives love you. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts, and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on C-Suite radio.com This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.